to episode 47 of Expected Value, the podcast that goes inside the sports analytics world. I'm Paul Carr from True Media. And since we're in the midst of the NBA Finals, we have a guest who used to work for an NBA team. Seth Partnow was formerly the director of basketball research for the Milwaukee Bucks. He now writes for The Athletic and is the director of basketball for the data company StatsBomb. Last November, he released a book titled The Mid-Range Theory, Basketball's Evolution in the Age of Analytics. I'm about halfway through the book, and it's really good, as we'll talk about, not just for the obvious basketball perspective, but also to talk through the thought process for how data is used by teams and stuff like that can be applied to any sport or industry, really. So I'll talk with Seth about his book in this conversation. We'll also talk about the first two games of the NBA Finals, how he watches games and then looks at data afterward, the state of NBA analytics in general, his path, his unusual path from law school to the NBA, advice for anyone interested in basketball analytics, and he even has a Luke Longley story. So stay tuned for that. Then producer Sergio De La Esprilla will join me to react and wrap things up. Without further ado, here's the Expected Value Conversation with Seth Partnow. We're joined now on Expected Value by Seth Partnow, Director of Basketball for StatsBomb, former Director of Basketball Research for the Milwaukee Bucks. Seth, thank you for joining us here on the show. Let's start with the NBA Finals here. Um, I'm in Kansas, more of a college basketball fan who always shows up late in the NBA season for the playoffs and the finals. So, I mean, as a casual fan, my take is basically the Celtics shot really well in fourth quarter game one and the Warriors did the same thing in in game two. Obviously, there's a lot more to it than that. Uh, How do you... It's, it's almost a bigger question, but how do you go about looking at games like these that look like blowouts, at least on paper? How do you go about looking at these games, dissecting them from more of a, a deeper analytics type of angle? I mean, you 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 try to look at it as much process based as possible. So, um, this is this is a trick that uh, that one of my podcast partners, Moda Kill, uh, likes as a, as a, as a film coordinator was cut off the film as the ball leaves the guy's hands. Are you happy with the shot we got? Um, and and that's hard to do because um, uh, even the, one of the big advances when we got and I'm sure we'll get it here later, but one of the big advances when we got to to tracking data in basketball is it kind of removed the uh, the subjectivity of was that a well contested shot or not because you can you can look at any sort of hand charted version of that and it's impossible to say that it wasn't massively influenced by the end result of the shot if it went in it's like oh i gotta get a better contest on that and if it missed good job when in reality it's very random yeah so any other like what takeaway from you know kind of looking at it that way a little more specifically than just your box score numbers any specific takeaways from game one or game two as we move the series to boston um, they're very Boston's offense was very different in games one and two. Um, I thought they did for the most part. Uh, they did a a good job getting in their drive and kick game and finding you know open shooters and they made a lot of them, but they were getting really good shots, especially in the second half. Um, game two, kind of from the jump, literally from the jump, um, the first play of the game, Draymond Green ties up Al Horford at the top of the key at the top of the arc, uh, forces a second jump ball. Uh, Golden State was far more aggressive and physical on the perimeter, and it really kept Boston out of getting into any sort of any sort of flow, any sort of drive and kick continuity. And they stayed in the game in the first half largely on the back of 
some pretty exceptional shot making by by uh, Jason Tatum in particular. But when that sort of ran dry a little bit in the third quarter, that's where we started to get the avalanche that that we saw. When you're watching a game, you're, you're just sitting you're on your couch watching a game, probably yelling at the TV like most of us for one reason or another. Like what? How do you do that? Like, what's your thought process? You know, you, you've, we've touched on some of the things that you're picking up, but just how do you watch a game? I, I don't know if as a fan is is even fair, but just as a with that analytical mind still going, how do you watch a game right now? So this is an analogy I've, I've, I've I use whenever I'm asked this question is uh, I don't know if you know like how you spot a marked card in a deck is if you're kind of flipping through kind of like a flip book or like an animation flip book, the different markings on the back of a card will flash. And so go, something's different there. You don't like consciously pick it up necessarily, but you see something. Right. You're not looking for it, but you still spot it just because that's how the brain Um, and the eye work. I I think you, you watch enough NBA basketball, you know how things are supposed to look and then something unusual happens and it's, whoa, what happened there? Let, let, Let me go back and see what that was. Something seems out of place. Something seems different. Yeah, I think that's um, that's uh, that that's part of it. And and you know, for example, you could see again uh, if you if you just if you took a a still photo of where Boston's perimeter players were on offense at the start of game one and the game in game two, you'd see that they were like three feet higher out on the floor in in game two, kind of as a result of of Golden State's increased pressure. And so that's the kind of thing you pick up on. Okay. Yeah. No, I like that. And then if it's after the game, so you know, you'll see whatever a coach or a player at a press conference, and they have their your basic printout box score, uh, which is obviously a starting point. If you're looking for something after a game, maybe you didn't see a game, but you want to try to get a sense of what happened. What what's your go to? What kind of things are you looking for in the numbers after the fact to figure out maybe what happened, especially if you didn't see it or, or weren't as familiar with the team or something? I mean, especially if a game had a surprising result or a large margin, the first thing you look at is three point shooting, just to see if if one team was was particularly like particularly hot or particularly cold. Um, you know, in this day and age, that explains a large amount of you know crazy variation in scores right there. Uh, and then you start to look at you know the the sort of the basic four factors analysis. I don't I, I don't always go to like the actual percentages but look okay how many free throws did what was the free throw differential what was the turnover differential offensive rebound stuff like that um and then the next level is i think that uh, uh, ben fox site cleaning the glass is a marvelous resource uh, resource because he's i mean he has you know scripts that take uh play by play and kind of give you a first kind of cut of situational play Kind of see half court offense, transition offense, some shot location stuff, uh, some lineup stuff that gives you a really quick snapshot of 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 you know how a team accomplished something. Okay, a team put up offensive rating of one thirty five. Were they just great in the half court, or did they get out in the fast break a lot? Um, uh, on the other end, if if okay, they 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 struggled. Was it because they 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 were taking a bunch of mid range shots in the half court, or because they just couldn't make a layup or a three. Um, so that that's and then you know the full process is kind of the next morning. This is both when I was with the Bucks and now with the, the publicly available tracking data. That's when you start to get some of the you know the the defender distance uh, potential assists, um, all, all those kind of more detailed context of of sort of how the game was played. So it's really almost 
three levels and then you know when you when you have the full tracking data set it's, it's even more and then you're now we're talking about like post game reports and that's a whole other semi proprietary can of worms that <laughs> yeah you mentioned avoid. Uh, your work with the Bucks, where your director of basketball research was the official title. Uh, what was that role? And I know these roles have changed even just in the the few years since then. But at least I think it was like 2016 to 2019. Like, what was that job with the Bucks? What did that job do? Um, so we had a. I mean, for the entirety of my time there, we had a, a, a reasonably small shop. We uh, we peaked at three three people and then and then also there was a a uh, data scientist who worked uh, directly with our with our uh, performance team our, our like our training and 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 uh, medical folks so a, a lot of it was was the the maintenance of sort of the day to day the pregame the postgame the getting information uh, or dashboards to scouts when they were going to see a see a college player or something like that um, you know Kind of constantly updating, uh, you know, win projections and projected standings and playoff matchups, um, draft modeling, of course, um, keeping you know some degree of in, in season is kind of hard, but because uh, because the uh, the sample sizes are weird, but you know some player value metrics to then give sort of a first cut of a of like a possible impact of a of a proposed transaction would be so uh, all of that stuff and and you know. The uh, amount of things to do uh, more than filled the available hours, um, right? Yeah, and there's then, never never enough hours, never enough people. Yeah, exactly. Always and too so, much data, right? Right, and then it, so um, then this is something that I don't think isn't always realized from the outside is that there's so much of that going on, and then also like you kind of you as a professional you want to kind of learn new things, so you want to touch the scouting, you want to touch the salary cap, you want to you want to at least be a fly on the wall for trade or contract negotiations calls. So the the upshot of that is that the the both the time and the mental energy to do kind of new things during season is pretty limited. And so then it's like like a lot of the 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 innovation that isn't just like tooling and dashboards and 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 better presentation happens kind of in a very narrow window uh kind of um you know like maybe late july august september where you're kind of balancing i need a vacation with um let's learn something new right i have time to breathe and do something uh, you, you kind of touched on this and this is in your book too it's interesting to me as a fan you know i tend to think of like the analytics role is more directly impactful on I'll call it games, game day. And it seems like there's so much more, like that's a small percentage almost of the job and of these departments and, and that role at the Bucks. Like, how would you kind of split up that role? Like how much of it is directly game day, game prep type of thing? Because uh, it seems like it's different than say baseball, where you, know, you have an advanced scouting report every day that the teams are putting together and something like that. How does the kind of game day stuff versus everything else that you're doing, how does that split up? Um, for starters, it, I would say it depends. There are, and increasingly, there are kind of coaching analytics positions. Whether that's someone on the bench, someone travels with the team, someone who stays in office, that is focused specifically on kind of, I guess, we'd call strategic things. Um, that's that's an increasing role. But I think that um, the sort of the more the personnel side, the reporting side, the the the, the, the you know the salary cap, the the the, the the production value to contract ratio, um, 
those are almost more natural applications uh, just because those are things that have are always been sort of statified a little bit because when you're dealing with players at volume, you kind of have to abstract out and put numbers on them. Um, so there's there's a little bit of a of a less of a barrier to uh, no actually let's use better stats let's use stats that better reflect better predict. So these are things um, that they're doing anyway in the front office is figuring out what a player is yeah. worth basically. Now you just have better methods to do it. Um, I think that the other side is coming along, and I think that I mentioned tracking data earlier. I think that that you know this this is I believe our ninth season ninth thirteen fourteen to now it's ninth eighth. Ninth. Okay. I'm I'm good at math. This is the ninth season that we have like like full tracking data. And I think that is the one of the upshots of that is much greater kind of uh utility and acceptance on the strategic side because we can actually um use the same language. Um, you know, prior to that, you know, when when play by play was kind of the deepest stuff we had, the state of the the state of the art was kind of like top down player value models, which are nice, but you know. Okay, show me the positive rap and play he made there. Like, kind of can't do that now. It's like, okay, you know, how does this play? Like, what's the out? What are the outcomes when this player defends a pick and roll this way? That's a that that sort of micro analysis is much more amenable to something that a coach can take on, understand, maybe disagree with, maybe agree with, but but at least um, is is almost in the same units as their sort of their their kind of. Uh, more qualitative assessments of, of what's been going on. So we've hit on the tracking data a couple times. You give us a sense of just what is available now. Because like I said, 10 years ago, you had box score data. It could be sliced and diced some ways, but not as extensively as now. So what do NBA teams all have access to? And then you know, maybe what, beyond that, what are teams trying to do as we move forward and trying to take that next step? So what's there now? What might be the next step? So since thirteen fourteen, uh, first it was uh, Stats Inc. with uh, with with Sport View, and since I think I want to say seventeen eighteen, uh, it's been uh, a Second Spectrum uh, have um, a number of cameras installed in the the, the rafters of every building. Uh, so you get uh, twenty five frames per second of X Y of the players. Uh, they've developed some Z and X Y Z of the ball. Um, uh, and so that's that's sort of the the base layer of of kind of the tracking data. Now on top of that, the, um, there are uh, f- there's always been some degree of sort of pre-processed um, eventing that that comes out of that. Um, and then there's I believe 28 teams also pay Second Spectrum for their sort of premium service, which is a pretty broad suite. Of what they call markings, which are which is very you know we get a we get a, a taste of this on NBA.com, but it's very in depth on a per event basis on you know location identities of players movement vectors um, you know some classification of coverages and and you know uh, things like that 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 allow for a really in depth view of what's happened in the game in the language of basketball. So you you know you can it's not just a you know it's not just a three pointer, it's a three pointer off the catch from this spot on the floor with the defender this far away moving at this speed where the player who caught the ball was, you know, relocating to his left. Like that's that that you know in in previously in the play by play it's you know at x time player makes or misses three from spot on floor and if it went in maybe it was assisted. That's all the information we had. Now we have, you know, 
first of all, we know if this shot was assisted, even if it doesn't go in. Um, but beyond that, we know if it was contested, we know if it was open, we know if, if it was wide open, we know if the player had his feet set or was on the move. Uh, we know if the shot clock was low, though you can derive that a little bit from play by play. So this is just, and that's just on shots, you know, just a massively larger amount of information to really help contextualize. And then you can almost treat the, the, those characteristics of the shot, those features of the shot as an outcome of the possession. So you're no longer beholding, holding completely to ball go in. Um, it's, it's like, was this a good shot or not? Um, you know, at, you know, agnostic of, of, you know, whether the coin landed heads or tails. Nice. So I have a few questions about your book and I know we'll come back to probably the tracking data through some of these questions. Uh, it's called the mid range, the mid range theory, basketball's evolution in the age of analytics. I'm about halfway through it, uh, right now. Let me ask, start with the obvious question. What inspired you to write a book? Why do that now? Um, I sort of, when I, when I left the book, the bucks and went to the athletic, I kind of Maybe I'll write a book at some point. And then uh, the publisher, Triumph Books, uh, basically cold called me and said, hey, write a book. Um, and so then I had to come up with an idea for a book. <laughs> um, but that's uh, um, but I got some good advice that, you know, I, I prior to the to the box, I had, you know, been doing work in public, but it was I was uh, I was the the indie band before they sold out. My uh, my, my circulation was small. So I, I got I got some good advice that, hey, there's a lot of stuff that you've written a lot about before that nobody has read. So it's OK to revisit those those topics. And so there was there's there's a, there was a lot of of, uh, um, you know, the, the the first album you have the lifetime to uh, to to write the songs for. And so there's right. a little bit of that. Yeah. So you said, I think so beginning of chapter one that you hate analytics. And you add context to that, but, but why? Why I know what you're getting at with it. Why do you hate analytics? I it's it's not it's the word. It's so it's so poisoned and bastardized and misunderstood that it just it it shuts down conversations so you know so abruptly that it it's it it's almost um. It's a boogie. It, it's a boogeyman for some, and a and a and a, um, and a uh, I don't know a panacea for others. Yeah. It's so what's like, the? I, I guess what's the workaround if you're trying to communicate with, I'll just say a non-analytics type coach, player, whatever, or someone. What's the workaround for kind of avoiding those bad buzzwords and and communicating more clearly? I mean, it's basically speaking in the completely speaking in the language of basketball. Is you know, yeah, you know, you could talk about. I this is this is a debate that 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 go, kind of goes on. Actually, that the, my, my boss at Statsbomb kind of doesn't agree with me on this all, all the time. But but I'm I think that what you name things matters a lot. Yeah, naming is like hard. It is and important. But, I mean, you you. I mean, I think that that I you know this is. I guess the best example I can think of is is you know some of the baseline hockey metrics like the hockey possession metrics like Corsi and Fenwick. What the hell is that? <laughs> like that doesn't you know yeah. if it was just like shot share, which is basically what it is. All of a sudden, like so much information about what the thing is is already communicated. And it's like, and even like you know even Hockey Man was like, yeah, 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 I can see how that could tell you something interesting. No, I feel I mean, soccer like expected goals. It's a great mathematical term. I, I don't think it's a good name. We're, we're kind of past that point now. 
I, and I say, I don't know if I have a better name, you know, shot quality or something. Cause yeah, it's just, it's a big mess. It's, it's a good name in some ways. It's bad in others. Is there anything better? I don't know, but it, naming things is really hard. I think it's an underestimated difficulty in, in this field, but it's better than some acronym or named after some right. dude. Right. It does that, give you some sense yeah. of, you know, if you start saying XG, I think maybe you lose some people a little bit more who are less interested. But yeah. It's, it's a hard thing. Uh, one thing I like about the book is that it's, so much of it isn't even, as you say, it's not fancy math. It's it's more about how to think about basketball, assigning credit. And it seemed like a very intentional thing by you just to kind of, I don't know if pull the curtain back is right, but just as you said, you walk through the process. So what, I guess, you know, what was your thinking behind trying to get into that and how, how important, real, real question is how important is that? to the job if you're working in sports analytics is more of the process behind getting to where those end numbers come in it's sort of it's the difference between an encyclopedia and a library like you can you can look up a fact in an encyclopedia but in the library you can do research and learn things and so if it's treated as well this is the answer then it's it's sort of a flat take it or leave it no, no more discussion. If it's a sort of a method of of thinking and integrating information, then that's where it becomes you know much more powerful in terms of of giving yourself the best chance for your decisions to work out. Yeah. And how do you find that right question? Because you said so much of it is about finding the right question. How do you go about just thinking, refining? What's the example maybe of a process of finding the right question, which can then of course give you better answers. Yeah, if you had the answer to that, then <laughs> no, it's that, that's it. That's that's you know the the expression is art not science, and that's why it's art not science is is like figuring out how to frame the question. Like you know the the great things about all like the technology we have in terms of you know data processing and and you know programming languages and stuff like that is um, it will precisely answer the question you ask. It's just the, the problem of we don't actually always totally understand the, the 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 specifics of the question we ask, and that's kind of where we go wrong sometimes. Whether it's not totally understanding um, what what the inputs are, like okay, well, I'm building a, a a player value model, and I lump all field goal attempts together, and you know, okay, what what am I what am I doing there if I'm actually doing that? What am I what information am I losing? How does that actually affect the outcome? And you sort of forget about that, and then you know the model spits out a very precise estimate, um, but it may be based on fl on faulty assumptions. Right? No, that that's not what I was looking for at all. Right. Yeah, you didn't even realize you were putting on there. Um, and the, the, I mean, the broader terms, though, if this is this is advice I give to to people who are you know trying to work in the field is like. How do you work with coaches is like, you know, as much as you can to encourage them, train them, instruct them to not try to ask stat questions. Don't ask me a stat question. Ask me a basketball question. And then if I do my job well, I can take that basketball concept and match it to the data we have as best possible and then translate it back rather than being limited by the coach's statistical vernacular, which is, you know, They've been doing other things rather than you know keeping <laughs> keeping up on the state of the the state of the state of analytics. So like you know, just the basketball thing, and then my job is to is to to dive deep and figure that out and let you do your job, which is 
observe the basketball thing. So a better question, just broadly speaking, a better question might be not how often does X happen, but what is a player's tendency in given situations? So is that, is that fair to say? Yeah. I mean, you can, you can say how often does X happen? Well, what's the, you can give an answer. Okay. 23% of the time he does this. Is that a lot? So, yeah. So, so it's like, it, you know, again, what, like it, when you're asking, what is his tendency? Like there's, there's almost an implicit, like, you know, relative to a certain baseline. And that's much, you know, that, that, that's a much better bit of information because, you know, okay, if, if he does it the same way everyone else does it, then you guard him the same way you do everyone else. If he does something odd, you want to know that. Um, and, you know, it's the difference between asking what, who's, who has the highest three point percentage and who's the best three point shooter. I think we can recognize those are very different questions. Um, so don't ask the, don't ask the, uh, the former, but stick to the latter is like always my advice to coaches. So I don't, I don't know if there's a conventional path to working in basketball analytics yet, but I'm pretty sure that yours is not it. Uh, let's, let's talk about your path and, and some career advice type of things. How did you get from law school in the early mid 2000s to the Bucks about a decade later? What was that path for you? It's a lot of happenstance. So uh, while I was in law school, I discovered I had um, like I'm I'm good at logic game like the LSAT tests logic games under time pressure ability. Um, and that, um, sort of naturally translates to the world of, of poker. And I discovered that, that you know, the same things that let me do score well in the LSAT to get into law school, like translated to that. Um, so I started playing poker on the side in law school and eventually like down the road, I played full time, but in law school, it also, I kind of, you know, through the sort of the online poker community met people who were doing like basketball stuff. A couple of them ended up, uh, uh, you know, that getting very prominent positions in the league. Um, you know, also like, uh, um, uh, have you had Kyle body on, on, on from driveline on, no, on the show? Talked to him before, so, but not on the show. So he, so he, like he came out of, of, of that, that, that world as well. A number of people working in baseball. Um, and so there were people who are kind of doing interesting things, applying kind of similar, you know, statistical thought processes that they used on poker to basketball. And so there were uh, first some very involved fantasy leagues, but also some people who went before me kind of saying, Hey, you can, you can, you can do this. And then kind of when I came back around and started writing about basketball around 2013, I, there were people in the league who kind of could, no, this isn't, this isn't BS. You're onto something here. Um, and so then I just kind of course, plugging away at that and was a little bit right place, right time. Um, cause that's when the tracking data first started to come out and I kind of, I guess, understood how to apply that. And then that sort of got my stuff in front of teams and, you know, uh, black box decisions happen and then, you know, bucks offered me a job. And here we are. Uh, so yeah, if you're, if you're looking to hire someone in a basketball analytics role today, uh, you're obviously looking for things that are a little bit different than 10 or 15 years ago. What are you looking for? You know, I say this as an possible advice career path for current students or people looking to get into the field. What do you look for now if you're looking to hire someone or pull somebody into a basketball analytics role? Well, it's a much more mature field now. So it's not just like one person who 
you know, builds the model and runs the database. And so it's, you know, all of these, all of these discrete skill sets, whether it's data engineering or statistical modeling or, and there's, you know, obviously overlap between a lot of them. Um, you know, what, what's your, what's your home field advantage? Which one of those things are you best at? Um, so like uh, there's, there, so those like more technical roles, I think that the, the ins are, you know, teams have probably gotten better at hiring those roles and better at figuring out where to go um, as sort of most teams kind of have have a, 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 a head of their analytics group who at least knows how to start to vet those skills. For, for, for the more kind of analysis, which is the sort of the, the, pub, the stuff that ends up, you know, making its way to public, uh, the kind of the uh, – I found a thing. Here's my results. It means this and that. The number one thing I, I look for, over and above, kind of baseline technical ability and um, kind of basketball knowledge. Really, the two things. So as I as I do a Spanish Inquisition skit, um, is is one is the ability to communicate because it's not it's it's not you know the job isn't a stat job. It's a communication job. And two is the the sort of the creativity and imagination to be able to formulate the questions correctly and uh, that we talked about earlier. And then uh, then uh, that, that's one part of it. And the second part of it is being sort of malleable enough to figure out like the data we have now doesn't always perfectly address every question, but to get yourself out of, well, this is the data we have, so I'll go with it, even if it's answering some sort of adjacent question, sort of figuring out how to get at the phenomenon or at least estimate or some uh, insight about the, the the piece that you really care about rather than just kind of, you know, slapping together information that's kind of related about a similar topic. Um, so that's, I, I found that even amongst, that's almost the rarer part I found in interviewing even like highly technically adept, well-trained people is that sort of, that that creativity that figured out factor is is the sort of the special sauce that is and there's the only way to the only way to develop that is reps. Yep. If I'm a someone new to basketball analytics and I'm looking to just get started on something, you mentioned cleaning the glass is a great resource. Any other things? Obviously, we want to read your book and, and get started that way. Any other couple starting points that you would point people to? Um, I think even though it was, was written probably eight years ago now, I think uh, "Thinking Basketball" by Ben Taylor is a is a good uh, is, is a good sort of introduction to sort of the thought process. Um, "Basketball on Paper" by by Dean Oliver is is a it's a little bit of a tough read. If you can find some of his his writings that are still online, I actually think that there's that that the stuff he has online is is maybe. Almost better as sort of like intro uh, to thought kind of ways. Um, I would you know read everything Kevin Pelton writes. Um, he doesn't necessarily directly do explainers about what things are, but he writes in a in such a way that it, it you can pick it up from context and not just that. Also, sort of how you go about thinking those things. So those those are I think some of some of the resources that 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 are out there. All right, let's talk about what you're doing now with StatsBomb. Your director of basketball is your title. I know you also are involved in the football launch that's that's gone big in the last couple of weeks. What are you, what's StatsBomb up to in football and basketball? 
so we've we're we're taking a lot of what uh, we I guess it's we now because even the, I, I've been there about nine months now. Um, the uh, have learned from collecting deep data on soccer at scale and are applying it to you know sports that are more North American based than kind of world soccer. Um, Football is the the hardest thing I've ever worked on from a, a, a sports standpoint. Um, there's a lot of commonalities between you know you can look at soccer, you can look at hockey, you can look at basketball. You can, there, there's there's a lot of sort of commonalities, and there's also um, because you know they are they're, they're games where a lot happens and it's continuous and goes back and forth. There's a little bit of like margin for error in terms of like okay if you're a foot off and where when where your data says the guy is it's okay it, it, it evens out there is no margin for error in football and everything is just so specific and also just in terms of of putting stuff together the rules are <laughs> so and the fact that the rules for college are so different from the rules from the nfl like you know like error checking formations about how many guys are on the line and stuff like this. Like so. all, all these little things just to get yeah. the data to a usable spot. Right. Yeah. Um, but beyond that, um, th- it's trying to, you know, what I was saying earlier about sort of the, the sport words, the basketball words, this is uh, 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 the head of second spectrum always talks about, and I quote this in the book, pulling basketball words from the data. I mean, we want to do the same thing for football. So it's so there's there's things that we know are important in football as sort of football watchers or professionals that you sort of know is there, but hasn't necessarily been collated and calculated and 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 uh, uh, aggregated um, yet in that sport because it's hard because it's very difficult. I mean, it, like it's it's uh, um, it, it's a very involved process to to you know get to one game but now if you you, it's not just one game but if you have a full season and a full season of you know the the entire fbs and and then you can start to make comparisons so um that's sort of where where we're we're looking to go with that and then um uh and then you know um aiming for over the next year getting to a basketball product is bringing a lot of the same information that is available now for nba play uh, to other areas of basketball, because um, in arena tracking isn't coming to the bulk of Division One men's or women's anytime soon. It's not coming to Euroleague anytime soon. So we have to find a way to, or we're, we're we are finding a way to, um, not the not the entirety of that data set, like the the twenty five frame, you know, reasonably precise location of every player across thousands and thousands of games. Like that's. That's a little bit beyond current technology. But if we can get to, there's very much an 80-20 solution of, okay, the stuff that we actually use the tracking data for, we can get to that much simpler. And so that's that's what we're looking to do um, in, in basketball. And you know, uh, football is the same thing. There's just fewer examples of, of what that data might be. Um, because even like the NFL's tracking data is so new and so kind of proprietary that and 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 frankly, I would like given that it's so new. It's I think it's probably, you know, we're we're nine years into, um, you know, thirty teams and media entities and you know, the 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 engineers that that Second Spectrum themselves have to really exploring what's in the basketball tracking data. We're we're three years to sort of into 
you know, partial exploration of what's in, in, in the football data. And, and so there's, there's just kind of less of an example to go from. So there's a little bit of the exciting part is sort of making it up as we go, kind of not just that, like matching a previously set standard, but creating a, creating a new standard. Yeah. Yeah, no, I'm excited to see what, what you have in store on both sports. So let me wrap things up with our playing favorite segment where we work through a number of your favorites. So we'll start with what is your favorite number and why? Uh, 21, because that ended up being my sports number. I think it ended up being my sports number because that was the jersey that someone gave me in high school and just kind of stuck. Yeah, yeah. Similar yeah. for me. What's Who was your favorite athlete as a kid? Reggie Lewis. Reggie Lewis. Nice. Yeah. Favorite nerdy thing that you track or have tracked in your life? I mean, there's uh, now it's everything, but I think <laughs> this, this was the, the, um, uh, I think we're, we're, we're probably of an approximate uh, of an age with each other. So you probably remember when like, you know, before they even had batteries in like Nintendo cartridges to keep stats, like right. for example, RBI baseball. Oh yeah. Didn't keep I stats. did this. Yeah, I uh, a pad of uh, baseball score sheets, and I I kept score and and collated stats, and and you know I I even thought of maybe I could do a fantasy league off of my RBI baseball. <laughs> so that was like you know that's you know I was um, I think my parents might have been able to figure out then. Oh, he's gonna he's gonna work in sports analytics, which doesn't yeah. exist yet because of this. Um, yeah, somewhere I have yeah. papers from like, like 1994 Vancouver Canucks on Stanley Cup on Super Nintendo, piles of stats, and Pavel Bure had, you know, 100 goals or whatever it was. So, uh, uh, yeah, Bure was good in that game. Great game, great game. Yeah, you're in Milwaukee. Favorite Milwaukee food or drink? Like if I come to Milwaukee and you say, you got to try this, where are you pointing me? Okay, so there's a general and a specific. Uh, I think my favorite, uh, the, the Wisconsin-style old-fashioned is, is delightful. Um, what makes it Wisconsin style? Well, so the like the standard old fashioned is made with whiskey and a and a sour. The Wisconsin style is brandy and sweet, which sounds, but it's it's delightful. You, you go to the right place and you get one. And the one of the right places is a free plug for my favorite spot in Milwaukee is a bar called the Vanguard, where they they actually have old fashions on tap, which is wonderful, um, and they. Uh, they also, it's a, they basically realized that every food culture in the world has like a sausage. <laughs> so they like, they make, they, 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 like the bulk of their, their food offering is like our sausages, but it's like, you can get a banh mi or a, or a schnitzel or a, so it's just, and they're all just, they're, they're spectacular. And also it's a bar that like shows wrestling pay-per-views. So when I first moved to Milwaukee, didn't know anyone. I spent a lot of time there. That was the place to go. Yeah. All right. And finally, your favorite, how did I get here moment? You know, where you kind of, you can soak in and surprise shock appreciation for, you know, where this crazy career has gotten you. So there's a mental one and a physical one. Uh, the sort of the mental one was uh, the the former, when I got hired by the Bucks, it was right around the same time that uh, the former uh, coach of or the Oregon State basketball program, Craig Robinson, got hired to do a like a, a player development, um, we, we, which is uh, at least in Milwaukee, is, is sort of the 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 outside of basketball, kind of uh, helping with general lives. Uh, Craig Robinson is also better known as Michelle Obama's older brother, so that was kind of, ah hi, 
that's a presidential seal that you can't buy anywhere <laughs> on your coffee mug. Okay. That's, <laughs> so that's that's one. The other one was our practice our my first year there, our practice facility, which they no longer use, is was like this uh, the ba- basically the basement of like a former like uh, uh, seminary school. And so it had all these little dark tunnels and twists and turns. And um, we had two Australians on our on, on, on the box. We had Matthew Devil Delvadova and Thon Maker. So um, Luke Longley, the former center of, of the Bulls, was uh, was an assistant coach for the Australian men's team at the time. So he was, you know, watching one of our practices. And I turned around a blind corner and like literally like my head like ran into it seemed like about his belly button because he's <laughs> you know I'm around professionally large men because right. I work in basketball and this and this was just like another kind of order of magnitude of just <laughs> maybe it was the surprise of turning the corner and like literally bumping into him but it was like oh wow okay <laughs> nice no love a good Luke Longley story to wrap things up here (laughs) Seth Partner Director of Basketball for Statsbomb thank you for joining us here on Expected Value True Media Studios. I'm Paul Carr. Thanks again to Seth Partnow for joining us on the show. Follow him on Twitter at Seth Partnow, P-A-R-T-N-O-W, and check the show notes for a link to get his book, read his work on The Athletic, and find several of the basketball resources that he referenced. I'm joined now by True Media Sergio De La Esprilla, who is a sad Miami Heat fan right now. First, my condolences on the Heat's playoff run ending, particularly the way that it ended. Were you able to put the misery aside and glean anything in particular from the conversation with Seth? Thankfully, that has now been uh, a week in the past. So I've had a full week to mourn um, to continue to see the nightmare of the Jimmy Butler three-point shot, which we got Seth off of the air, but we got Seth to admit to us was a good shot. He, he did reassure me it was a good shot. Um, nonetheless, it was a very sad moment for me. But it was a great conversation with Seth that we had. Um, and I really, really enjoyed basically finding out just – or not finding out, but realizing how young tracking data truly is. And, and not just in basketball, but across all sports. Uh, he was talking that he, there's like a nine-year sample size with tracking data um, and it really puts things into pers- puts puts things into perspective about how young this like advanced data really is, and how much more there is to find out, and ways to use it and integrate it into in-game situations or in pre-planning situations, or even in you know reviewing the game post-hand. Um, I, I really loved hearing about uh, all that tracking information and and just how they use it, you know, at least in Seth's time with the Milwaukee, Milwaukee Bucks, um, how they were able to use that data and apply it in a, in a proper way. Um, I also think it it's kind of funny that he's he was there with the exception of when he, you know, when he left um, for the entire Giannis like era. And so I'm interested to see maybe we can have him on later on again in the future and maybe ask him. You know how those advanced analytics help a superstar of the caliber of a Giannis Antetokounmpo mm-hmm. versus, you know, like um, uh, <laughs> my Heat fandom is going to show, but the, the man that they discarded, PJ Tucker, and he ended up in Miami. You know, like right. how do how do different players use different aspects of tracking data to improve their game, both at the superstar level and right. both as 
the seventh or eighth guy off the bench just looking right. to come in and do their part, you know? Right. Who's still playing when he's like 52 or something like exactly. that. Exactly. Right. I feel like I covered him in college back in the <laughs> 90s. <laughs> yeah. The tracking data thing is really interesting because, I mean, we talk about it a lot. It's a very common analytics thing. But yeah, teams and analysts, media, we're all still figuring out what to do with it because you get bigger sample sizes, you get better data, you know, more things are tracked. You know, we talk about how uh, in the past, the data, you know, just something like what direction a player is looking or heading, you know, some of that stuff was very imprecise early and now it's much better now, whether it's baseball or football. And, and yeah, everything's 10 years old, max. I mean, StatCast really started in 2015 and GS and the NFL is a little bit after that. Uh, soccer tracking data is just the last few years for the most part. So it's just really, it's really interesting because it's, it can clearly tell different and in some cases better stories than just event level or traditional stats. Uh, but there's also no point of reference. As he yeah. said, you know, if I say, you know, someone does this 23% of the time, like, okay, maybe you can intuitively kind of figure it out. But uh, it's just, it's a lot of, it's a lot of time and until we get more and more and better and better data. It's just going to be uh, a thing that's, it's, it's a fixture and it's also a new fixture. So I also think it's interesting to something that, that Seth said about, you have to look at the situation. <clears throat> excuse me, you have to look at the situations regardless of the outcome of the play, right? right. Like hard. a good shot is a good shot. Sometimes it just won't go in, but it doesn't mean that everything that happened on that play beforehand isn't exactly what should happen. So right. it's, it's the, um, <laughs> it's, it's the time, time tested, you know, sometimes the shots just don't fall. Right. You know, it, it no, is what it results is. oriented. He talked about poker, you know, it's mm -hmm. the same, whatever. Right. you right. get all your money in with the best hand that wins 95% of the time. You're still going to lose. You know, There's still a five percent that you won't chance that you're going to lose, you know? or even you know a good play is eighty percent of the time, and you lose twenty percent, and that happens a lot. And that kind of goes to what I I like to hear him talk about, was which was process and the importance of process. Yeah, uh, he touches on this a lot in his book, which I definitely recommend for anybody interested in sports analytics and especially basketball, but just sports in general, and just the way that he kind of talks through. Okay, here's the let's we'll call it old school data that we had. Here's the new school data we had. Here's how we started thinking about it differently to process that new data and make it more useful. Uh, you know, whether it's better ways of measuring uh, player talent or shooting ability or whatever it is, uh, just not just doing it, but the thought process of getting there. Uh, and I hear this, I've heard this from several guests where when they're talking about hiring or what they look for in candidates or students or whatever, they want to see what you have done you know, and what your output is. And often just as important as, as that is how you got there. You know, what sort of questions were you asking? How did you think about the data you had and what you could do with it? Uh, because those are the things that are often the most important to, again, ask the right question, get an answer that is helpful. Uh, the process is really important. You have to have technical skills, I'm not saying don't have those, uh, for whatever it might be to process data, uh, to code, to whatever, to program, et cetera. But if you don't have the right thinking process on how to use all those tools, you're not as valuable a candidate and maybe someone who could potentially break through the long list of people. Yeah, I completely agree. It's, and it's very much like a, something I thought of while he was, while he was talking was that, um, that meme where it's a bus and it's someone smiling on one side and someone being sad on the other. And the person that's sad, um, you can kind of fill in the, fill in the gaps. And I saw one a lot during during the playoffs, this this NBA playoffs, where players are kind of players you wouldn't expect would have big games. Like a Frank Nilakina had a big defensive game that doesn't really show up on the stat sheet, 
Um, and it's very much like analytics people are kind of sad because the outcome of the game <laughs> didn't reflect what they thought versus the, the person that's smiling is like, oh, he's just got that dog in him where right. there's things that you kind of can't measure sometimes. And right. I think finding and having the most accurate, uh, if you split it 50-50 in things you can measure and intangibles, then I think the better and the the more accurate and the better data we get for that 50%, I think can then inform um, and help to decide what the whole player can bring to the table on top of, you know, the other 50% that are intangible. Yep. So I think it's important for us to be able to get the most accurate data possible so that you can also see the intangible aspects reflecting and you can get a better idea for a player, right. you know, because yep. it's not going to be a hundred percent data, but it's also not going to be a hundred percent the intangible. So you right. got to find that balance. Yeah. Keep and shrink the intangibles. I'm not trying mm-hmm. to get rid of them entirely, of course, but you shrink them as much as possible. Or at least well, you always, you always want to be bit. able to find out what something is. So right. the less intangibles we have, arguably the better like you're saying because i would like to be able to predict things to happen you know yep yep makes everybody smarter and ideally make better decisions all right thanks sergio thanks one more time to seth part now for joining us on the show we have several other basketball guests in our archives including dean oliver whom seth referenced one of the godfathers of basketball analytics he's currently an assistant coach with the wizards uh, we talked to spencer anderson director of analytics with the pacers as well Please subscribe, rate, review the show on Apple and Spotify and wherever you listen to the podcast. We appreciate that. We appreciate any sharing on social media, good old-fashioned word of mouth. You can follow us on Twitter at True Media Sports to get a glimpse of what we do and how teams and media clients are using our websites. With the College World Series getting underway shortly, we're planning to talk college baseball in our next episode, so stay tuned for that as we're finishing up our first very busy and successful season working in college baseball. Until then, on behalf of producer Sergio De La Espria and everyone else here at True Media, I'm Paul Carr. Thanks for listening to Expected Value, the podcast that goes inside the sports analytics world. (laughs) 